As COVID case numbers and hospitalizations decline in the United States and vaccination rates continue to rise, several states have begun to lift orders, closing businesses and mandating masks. These moves have also been criticized by public health officials who say such moves are foolish. But did the pandemic ever really justify restrictions on movement and commerce in the first place? Are there any lessons that we can walk away with uh, about this experiment with lockdowns uh, that point perhaps a better way uh, to crafting policy about infectious disease in the future? Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to top, discuss this topic, lifting the lockdowns. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me today is Ankar Gatte, my colleague, a ARI senior fellow. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. Uh, as usual, we're going to follow our practice today of taking questions during the podcast uh, using, first of all, the Zoom Q&A module. So if you're watching us in Zoom, hover over the screen, hit that Q&A button. Best place to submit questions any, at any time is there. Otherwise, if you're watching us on YouTube, you can uh, support this channel and have your question rise to the top of the queue if you use the Super Chat feature. So, and we'll also be monitoring those Super Chat questions that come in. So Ankar, what's your take on kind of where we are uh, on the, the policy scene right now? What's the background? Uh, what's, at, you know, for, for the controversy that we're about to discuss? If you think about where, we, where this pandemic started with a burgeoning number of cases, an inability to really detect how many cases there was and real worries about hospitalization, and hospitals reaching their capacity, at least in certain states, that there's just too many patients for them to treat. Now we're at a moment in the pandemic, uh, hopefully at the beginning of the end of the pandemic, where case numbers are falling. And I think there's, it's still not great, but there's more detection ability of cases. So you can really think that detect, if detected case numbers are falling, it's likely that total case numbers are falling hospitalization capacity is better and hospitalization rates are falling. Obviously, it's partly due to that the vaccine rollout and ramp up is, so there's many more people vaccinated than there were a month or two months ago. And of course, also part of the population has had COVID and presumably has then some immunity to getting it. Uh, maybe if not total, pretty close to total if you've had COVID. So it's, I mean, there's real reason to think when case numbers and hospitalization rates are falling, it's not some blip, that it's the beginning of a trend. And in that context, many states have started to lift lockdowns, or at least, um, if not totally end them, uh, give, allow people more freedom and more freedom of movement. I mean, you're in Texas, and one of the most controversial ones, I think, was the Texas governor's executive order that is putting an end to some of the things he mandated, such as your statewide mask usage that was mandated. That's taken away. Oh, what is capacity? I think it's now 75. You can operate at 75 percent of capacity for restaurants and other sort of public venues or venues that welcome pub the public into them. I think it depends on which uh, part of the state you're in and whether what the level of hospitalization is, but something like that, yeah. 
Yeah. And so that's the the context. And it's obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but the governor of Texas and others are, are not saying nobody should wear a mask now. It's But it's not mandated to wear it. And you should think about it. But it's more, it's voluntary not now, not mandated. So that's the what's starting to happen across the country. I mean, I'm in Virginia, not much has been, we've never had it like a brutal lockdown, but it's also not, we're not at a stage where it's much is being lifted of what has been mandated, but it's starting to lift in places around the country. And obviously there's been, with maybe Texas leading it, a lot of criticism, even outrage of these of, of measures that are lifting some of the what was mandated before. Yeah, there have been some big changes here policy-wise in Texas, but what struck me was how how quickly and uh, with with what level of intensity the criticisms of these policy moves came out. I mean, we had President Biden, for instance, saying that it was a big mistake. Uh, the last thing we need is Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. Uh, the, so he characterized uh, the decision as Neanderthal thinking. Um, the CDC director, Rachel Walensky, said now is not the time to release all restrictions. Now, those were just sort of the taglines. But we also got some more substantial arguments from a number of different uh, articles that I found. One was uh, from CNN medical correspondent Jonathan Reiner who said it's a wrong-headed plan that risks prolonging the pandemic and endangering all Americans. Now, one of the pieces of evidence that he offered was that in the past, Texas, for example, did lift restrictions and then subsequently case rates shot up and the some, though not all of the restrictions were reimposed. Uh, the CNN correspondent also cites a new CDC report that finds there's a correlation between the counties that have mask mandates and the, and the case rates uh, that they they go up in the counties that don't have mask mandates, etc. Um, the Fort Worth Star Tribune also had an, an article making an argument about how even though the vaccination rates are going up, uh, that Texas is a little behind the curve uh, on vaccination. In part, I think that's because of the uh, the storm that we had that messed up a lot of people's schedules. Um, but even so, it's it's still behind the curve and hasn't been as fast as other states. And uh, this author, the, the editors thought that the, the, you needed to have a substantially higher rate of vaccination before these uh, restrictions could be lifted. And interestingly, the Star Tribune acknowledged that the governor was still urging people to wear masks voluntarily, but was concerned that even in spite of that, the only message that anybody would get from this policy move was that it was okay to not wear masks anymore. Um, that's something I want to talk about later, that what, whether the message is something that should be uh, a consideration here. But uh, last line I thought we should share, Houston Chronicle says, this is gambling with people's lives again. And one question, Ankar, that I want to discuss today is who's doing the gambling with people's lives here? I, I, so I, I, I see the reasons that they're offering uh, on the side of the critics of the Texas lifting, why they think that's gambling. Um, I think there's an argument you could make on the other side here, though. And, and I think maybe you wanted to 
make a few comments on that. On that. Yes. So I was not. I don't know about you, but I wasn't surprised by the criti- the the amount of criticism for lifting the lockdowns and how swiftly it came because it, there's certain assumptions behind it. And I think those assumptions are wrong, but so many people hold the assumptions that if you really think this, then it is, yeah, maybe we should be locking down until there's not even one case of COVID. And that's, so if you think of it's the government's job, it's the government's responsibility, we've somehow delegated to the government the power and the authority to bring the pandemic to an end. Then it needs incredibly wide powers and it needs to be able to order us around and tell us when we can go out, when we can't, because what it's trying to do is end the pandemic. And I think it's just, it's a, it's a mistake and it's really mistaken to think that that's what the government's responsibility is. It's to end the pandemic. I do think in a pandemic, government has certain responsibilities, which our government basically has defaulted on and I think continues to default on, which is that it's legitimate for government to isolate actually contagious individuals who are not self-isolated. That so contagious individuals who are going around and infecting other people. You, the government can and should and can have the power to target those individuals, but that's not the same as it's bringing the pandemic to an end. If the pandemic's going to end, it's because of things like vaccination, uh, the development of a vaccine, and then enough sufficient number of people taking it. And that's for individuals both individual scientists, companies, pharmaceutical and biotech companies to develop the vaccine, uh, to test it for individuals to decide, yeah, I'm going to take this, it's worth taking it. And if the pandemic's going to end, that's how it's going to end. And it will end from the the actions of individuals, uh, private citizens doing this. And it's not the government's job to develop vaccines to figure out how they should be tested, when you're allowed to take the vaccine, when you're not allowed to take it, if they can be sold on the market or not, or government's going to distribute all the vaccine. That should not be its role. Its role should just be in a, a delimited but important one, which is when there's actually contagious individuals to isolate them if they're not self-isolating. And then it's not just that the, I think people think that the government's role is to stop the pandemic, there's a kind of myopia about it. It's that this is all they're focused on. So it's it's government policy in a vacuum is one way to think of it. So they're not, it's sort of end the pandemic at whatever the cost. So there's massive economic devastation. I mean, millions and millions of people have lost their jobs or are finding it difficult to make ends meet. The kind of the fix to that is to have massive new government spending and what part of what that means is just redistributing wealth from some people to other people. But, and if you think of the economic devastation, if you really think of individual lives and how many individual lives have been overturned because of economic damage to businesses, to employment, just the, the loss in education, because so many schools have been closed across the nation 
and the complete disruption to personal life and the loss of your time here on earth. I mean, as an adult, if life expectancy is 78 or 80 years, you have 60 years to live as an adult. And this is one whole year that you've been locked down by government. And if you're really thinking about this, then it's the kind of focus that all that matters is deaths or hospitalizations from COVID and nothing else matters. And government just has to be focused on that. And then it's, yeah, we need to lock people down because there might be a surge in hospitalization or deaths from COVID. It's so uh, ignoring the wider context and it's not really taking into consideration people's individual lives and how much damage has been inflicted on. And why does government have the power to inflict this and make these kinds of decisions for individuals? Yeah, and this is this is part of the reason why I was suggesting who asking the question, who is it really who's gambling with anybody's uh, lives here? It's it's even when these restrictions are lifted, anyone has the freedom to protect themselves. Uh, they can wear a mask, they can stay home. I think it's still true that that government should be doing more to uh, test in order to let people know when they need to do that. But uh, when the alternative is let's force everybody to stay at home, not let them assess their own risks, that's that's really gambling with people's lives uh, in a in a much more direct way. And on what grounds? I mean, so Ankar, you flagged that there's a there's a an assumption about what the proper role of government here is that is itself unjustified, that they think it's to end the pandemic rather than to protect uninfected people. Uh, but even if you look at the, the stated justification, if you, if you just for a moment bracket, well, let's assume that it is to end the pandemic, there's still a whole bunch of, uh, I think, uh, insincerity in uh, the way that policy is even being offered to the public. Uh, it's it's just taken uncritically for granted that that these lockdowns even are efficacious in in stopping the spread and uh, of the disease. And that comes at a time when I think the evidence is becoming more and more uh, clear that it's not obvious that that's true. So, for example, just this past uh, week, there was an article that was released by the Associated Press. Uh, not this, and we're not talking about Fox News or Breitbart here. This is an Associated Press article by David A. Lieb. Virus tolls similar despite governors contrasting actions. Uh, there was a, a similar article released by the Economist. Uh, one of them compares the policies and the outcomes uh, to between Florida and California. On, on the one hand, that's the mm -hmm. AP article. The Economist compares Florida, sorry, com compares Texas to California. And the point is that, uh, you know, in one of these states, there have been massive lockdowns, in another, a lighter hand. But if you look at the actual chart of the course of the disease, rates of infection uh, per capita, rates of death, they're not that different. I mean, they're a little bit lower in California compared to Florida and Texas, but it's not a massive difference. It's not the difference you would expect. I mean, I think it is common sense that if you lock people away in a room, if you put them under a forcible quarantine, I mean, if you put everybody in a box for two weeks, 
you know, against their will, of course, the disease would stop spreading. They wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't be able to to contact people, and uh, I mean, that's just basic physics. But of course, uh, then everybody would die. So it's it is a serious policy question as to whether the kinds of lockdowns that they have been imposed that permit some kind of minimal interaction are still efficacious given the contagiousness of this disease. And they've now done actual statistical studies on this where they've they've looked at the 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 first few months of lockdown in different different countries they've compared the countries that did heavy lockdowns to countries that had uh, uh, no lockdowns or light lockdowns like Sweden and South Korea there was a a, a journal article that was published uh, in in January uh, in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation uh, by Ben David O. Bhattacharya and Ioannidis. And these are some noteworthy, reputable scholars doing statistical regression, finding they can't find a huge difference that these, uh, that these, that these lockdowns actually made to, the, to rate of infection. Now, there have been other scholars who've come back and found, well, maybe there was a little bit of effect. Uh, but again, nothing big and obvious. And it's, it's hard to do, you know, actual social science where you can control for all the variables but the point is just that these are these are really uncertain uh, uh uh this is really uncertain data and yet it's being just offered as obvious to everybody that lifting the lockdowns is going to cause a spike now maybe it will <laughs> i don't i don't know um but it's it's uh the fact that it's so uncertain i think is is all the more reason why what's being proposed here is gambling with people's lives in the face of such uncertainty where there's a much higher degree of certainty that you are going to ruin people's lives, you're going to devastate uh, them economically, and that that's just taken as though it's a, considera a consideration unworthy of concern. Um, there's similar things that we could say about the mask mandates. I mean, I, I must I wrote an article for the Ayn Rand Institute saying why well, I think it's important to wear masks for just completely selfish purposes. Uh, to protect yourself and to protect the other people that you care about. And so it's it's very relevant that the governor in this case is still encouraging people to do that voluntarily. But it's one thing to think that there's evidence of efficacy in of wearing masks. There's another, it's a totally different question. Are mask mandates efficacious? And yeah, there have been studies, uh, again, suggesting some kind of correlation, but there again, it's hard to control for the variables uh, how much of this is because of voluntary behavior versus versus the actual policies? I mean, it's it's. I think it's one thing that's noteworthy about all of these mandates is just how unenforceable they are. There's no way that that the police can go around checking to see who has masks on and who doesn't in the situations where they would be most likely to infect each other. And so, you know, does the evidence about the correlation between the stopping of the spread and the mask mandates point to the efficacy of the mandates? Or is it just that the people who live in these counties that had governments that were willing to impose these mandates, are they just people who are more likely to wear them voluntarily in the first place? And I think you, you mentioned earlier, Ankar, that what's going to end this pandemic is, is, is the voluntary behavior and the voluntary choices of people to get vaccinated and, and so forth anyway. And so none of these studies control for these kinds of questions. And um, it's, it's, that's just on the assumption that there, it's even a good thing to have a policy that stops the spread, which I think you've already raised some good questions about anyway. Um, and, and maybe there's more to say about that. 
Yeah, you've looked at some of these recent studies more than I have. Of what I've read, there haven't been any. So if you take, say, the comparison of Florida and California or Texas and California, that they're looking at the big picture or trying to look at a bigger picture. It's focused on COVID death rates, hospitalization. But if you're really making a comparison and trying to think what was more effective, what was you would have to bring in that the places that did not lock down or did not lock down at, with the severity of, uh, say, a California or New York. What else happened there? Like, how did economic life continue to go on? Um, what was the toll in California versus Texas economically and job uh, losses? And I mean, broader than that, you would have to look economically. Then you would have to look at, um, I mean, one other aspect of this, which will be hard to figure out because it'll be longer term that you'll see effects, is just if you just think of health healthcare, what happened to people when they're locked up? I mean, there's been a lot of uh, reports and sort of preliminary studies that depression and suicide has gone up. But if you think much more broadly, which many people early in the lockdown were bringing up, I mean, this means that people's other diseases aren't being treated or aren't being treated nearly as well as they were, um, that if you're getting cancer treatment or you're scheduled for surgery, and these are all been delayed, postponed, and then just the routine preventive tests aren't happening as much. And what is all the effect of all of this? And even if you leave aside that it's not government's job to be trying to engage in some calculation like this, the idea that you think it could engage in a calculation is a fantasy too, that there's no way any bureaucrat can figure out any of this. And so, and it's why it has to be left to individual decisions. You have to figure out, like, is it worth risking if I if I have a, a family history of breast cancer, is it worth risking going to the hospital and getting preventive tests, even though that might increase my likelihood to be exposed to COVID? But what's better and what's better for my own life? And the idea that it's government making a decision for everybody in regard to this, it's, it's a further aspect of just that they've obliterated individual lives. It's just not what they're considering. Yeah, one thing that I that I noticed in my in the survey that I short survey I did of some of the scholarly literature here is that it is not at all obvious that some of these lockdown measures aren't actually increasing the spread of the disease. Because one thing that happens when you shut down restaurants, you shut down, uh, you know, you you tell people they can't go to work is well, they all stay together as a family and stay inside. And there's, I mean, there's some evidence, to, it's not conclusive, but there's some evidence to indicate that that actually makes the spread worse when you put all these people together because it spreads more among family members, especially multi-generation families. They're all living together in the same house. Um, so, you know, again, I don't think that's conclusive either, but like that is, hasn't even been taken into consideration in some of these policies. Uh, and yeah. it's, again, I think an issue of a question of, of risk that individuals need to be able to assess for themselves. Do they feel uh, like there's greater risk staying at home or do they think there's greater risk going to work? Or they might be working in an office where it's mostly empty and there's nobody there to, to, you know, to worry about. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were similar arguments made early on 
for the lockdowns about school shutting down the schools that if it might be if you're really thinking about spread and if individuals could think about spread it might be that you lessen the spread by kids being in for this particular disease so for kids being in school rather than being at home and around as you said multi-generation families parents grandparents that you're actually increasing the spread when you shut down the schools so we we've talked about how we shouldn't take for granted that it's government's job to end the pandemic per se. But what about the rationalization or the rationale that was actually offered at the beginning of the pandemic? Now, I don't think they've stuck to this, but the, 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 the justification that there's a need to flatten the curve because hospitals, hospitals are overcrowded, uh, they're going to collapse. And so th that's why the measure of hospitalization rate is the one to look at. That is actually the one that the Texas policy is being keyed to. They've said that because hospitalization rates are declining, that's why they can afford to lift the lockdowns. And there are even provisions in the governor's executive order saying in areas where rates, uh, where there's only 15% capacity or something like that, then local officials still have the power to impose certain kinds of limits. I mean, what about that as a as a, a justification for these government policies? I think the first point to make about that is what you just hinted at, which is it wasn't really the motivation. I think the way uh, the governor of New York articulated the rationale for lockdowns that we, we have to save every life is much more what they were doing so that it's it's we have to end the pandemic and until we do, we have to save every life we can that might be lost to COVID-19, regardless of any other impact and effects on people's lives. I think it was much more that that was actually driving lockdowns. There certainly was, was worry about hospital capacities, but I don't think it's what drove the lockdowns. But in thinking about hospital capacity, the what one has to get is that this is such a heavily controlled aspect, a heavily controlled by the government aspect of the economy. And that in other industries that are more free, what you expect if demand is surging for their services is that the industry will um, say, oh, look at the increase in demand, let us increase production, let us figure out how to meet this increase in demand. You, this is what you saw for the high tech world. There were all kinds of companies. Zoom is probably the one people know the most that, I mean, all of a sudden, the its demand for its services are surging. And it met that demand by producing more and figuring out how to produce more. And that's what should have happened in the healthcare industry. And the more free it is, but which includes that people actually think of healthcare as something I have to pay for. And now it's more, I mean, healthcare is always a valuable service, and it's your will be will pay for it because it, you need it in order to live and to thrive. But certainly in a pandemic, it's yeah, this is even more valuable service. People would have been paying for all kinds of things if they were allowed. Like if this was much more like the high tech industry, much more private, much more driven by production, actual prices, and the quest for profits. And in healthcare, that's it's so distorted by government controls that that has to be the first thing one thinks about in terms of um, the, the the hospitals being overwhelmed. 
that this is a function of them being uh, controlled by government, not free to act. And there's all kinds of instances in the healthcare industry where they were just not free to act from developing tests to increasing hospital capacity to uh, administering to individuals the vaccine much earlier if people were, for various reasons, thought their risks were lower or were just ready to volunteer to take the vaccine. There's all kinds of ways in which they weren't able to act as private individuals would have acted. And I think in that context, what you, you have to think of healthcare in the way we're thinking of the vaccines now, precisely because we don't allow real production prices and people to profit. We don't allow individuals to buy vaccines. So what it means is governments distributing them. And what that means is governments rationing vaccines. And it's, I mean, that's, we still haven't been able to get a vaccine here in Virginia. Um, uh, I'm not particularly high risk. My wife is higher risk. So she's higher in the line, but you don't really know what's happening. And the, it's, it's ration. The, the government will tell us hopefully when we're eligible to get the vaccine. And the same should have happened more generally in healthcare, that it's, it's, there should have been much more admitting that, look, this is rationed. It's, so it, the demand can't surge, like, I'm sorry, production can't surge like it did in tech. And if people knew how it was gonna be rationed, just as you know, like I know, because I'm not considered in a high risk category, I'm gonna get a vaccine maybe three months from now. And I can adjust my life as a result of that because I know, yeah, it's being rationed. I can't pay for it. I can't buy it. So that's when I'll get it. And you could act rationally if you knew. So just if you knew, look, you're a young person. If you get COVID and get complications, you're in the back of the line for getting into the hospital. If the hospital's near capacity, you're not going to get in. And you could then act more rationally. So what would you say to this, uh, the following objection? Someone could say, okay, granted. Uh, part of the reason why the hospitals are overflowing is they're, they're run by the government uh, and they don't have the same productivity that a free market healthcare industry would have, but that's the way things are right now. The government broke it, so they bought it. And as a result, they have to impose these lockdowns in order to stop the hospitals from being overwhelmed because of the, you know, we can't just have people dying all over the place. So uh, do you think that the even somebody who acknowledges that uh, government shouldn't be in control of the healthcare industry would still have a valid point here about the necessity of these widespread shutdowns to save, to save the healthcare system? I don't think of it as valid. I do think of it as more plausible, but more plausible if it's in the context of acknowledging yeah, okay, government controls so much of this industry that it's a disaster and it can't respond in the way the high-tech industry responds. And, and as a result of that, if government and sort of the people who are in support of lockdowns had said, let's lift as many controls as we can as fast as possible, because in a pandemic, people have to be able to act and act quickly and learn and learn from mistakes including. And so if they had, had really worked, we're gonna lift all the controls that make testing impossible to develop and de deploy. We're gonna lift the controls on hospitals. We're gonna lift, we're not gonna have um, the 
the the way we think about vaccines in a non-pandemic, we're not going to think about it in the same way. And we're going to allow people much earlier on to experiment with the vaccines and uh, and companies to test on people who are volunteering. So if they had done that and then said, but still hospitals are beyond their capacity. And then so like lockdowns, a last resort, not the first thing, in effect, that they did. Um, then it would be plausible. I still don't think it would be valid for government to be wielding that power, but I would have more, much more sympathy for the argument. So it would still be wrong, but maybe more understandable. Maybe uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't criticize them as much. But that's yeah. clearly not what's uh, the, the situation has been. And that actually reminds me of something that I wanted to say now about the decision to lift some of these lockdowns, because as as disingenuous as I see some of the criticisms of the decisions to lift them. I, I at the same time, I don't want to come out in favor of just kind of unqualified praise of the governor of Texas, you know, however much this may mean that there's now more freedom in Texas, because uh, it's 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 not like there's uh, no no blame to assign even in this case. So, for instance, in the past in Texas, when lockdowns were lifted, there was then an opportunity, well, okay, so the, 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 the case rates have come down. That would seem like a great opportunity to start doing what government's actual job is, which is to test, trace, and isolate. And that would mean, for example, hiring a bunch of contact tracers in order to confine the infection to where it actually is, as opposed to punishing everybody arbitrarily and indiscriminately. Well, that didn't happen. There, there wasn't a big uh, plan to to invest heavily in contact tracing. I think they said something like they'd, they'd uh, in July, they had like 2000 people in Texas who were who hired as contract tasters. They needed 4,000. I'm sure they probably need more now and I'm willing to bet, I tried finding statistics. I'm willing to bet they don't have even the 4,000 right now. Uh, not only that, but these, these orders have lifted the restrictions, but only as a matter of permission, not as a matter of right. They've still been keyed to hospitalization level. They've still been on the premise, well, we've brought the hospitalization rate down to this current level. And, uh, but the previous orders, the previous lockdowns were imposed because the levels were high. So they're still saying, you don't have the right to live a regular life and to go about your business and to assess your own risk, as long as there are other people who are in hospitals who you need to, whose life, you know, who, and you need to be held hostage to their lives. So even the current order still assumes it's government's role to protect hospital capacity. Past orders, I think, even looked at and indicated just the rate of spread as the key measure. So one, the one that imposed mask mandates in the first place said that they needed to reduce the growing spread of COVID and avoid the need for more extreme measures. So. And I think all of this gives some credence to one criticism of the Texas decision, which is that uh, if the government decides to lift these lockdowns, people will take the message from it that things are OK and they can now go about their business because they've been given this kind of permission. Uh, it's it's true that the governor said, yes, you should still wear masks, but that's also not what's in the headlines. And I think people are now on the premise of looking to the government to see 
looking they're they're on the premise of looking to government policy decisions as sort of their guide for what's okay to do with their own lives and i can tell you just now from uh personal experience of having been out and about that yeah i think there are a lot of people now who now maybe maybe a lot of them are vaccinated and they think that that they'll be okay and they may have reason but it's it's hard to think that's true in all the cases I've seen. I think there are a lot of people who are assuming things are fine now just because this 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 uh, order has been lifted. And uh, I don't think that they're ev they're following the advice to continue uh, to wear masks and to take responsibility for themselves. And, and there's not even that distinction that's being di discussed that uh, it's one thing for the government to make a decision. It's another thing for you all to make that decision. This is one of the effects a particularly longer term effect, but we're talking about a year now of, of lockdowns of paternalism. So paternalism is is the idea in political philosophy that government's proper role is in effect that of a parent. And so the the relationship to the citizen is very un-American. The relationship is you're not competent to make decisions for yourself, to figure out what's good for your life, to figure out how to pursue your happiness. You're just not competent to do it. You're like a child. And maybe you can make a few decisions for yourself and so on, but you can't assume full responsibility for your life. The government has to step in and do it. It has to manage your life, decide for you what are rational and irrational risks to take. So it treats you like a child. And the more you treat someone like a child, the more they start acting like a child. And then it's, it's okay, if you tell me I can't do this and there's something risky about it, it's okay, I won't. And then if you say, okay, now you're permitted to do it, it's then, oh, I guess there's not much risk involved. And, so, and it's a longer term paternalism. Um, it, it's a kind of vicious circle. You're treating people like they have no uh, judgment and responsibility and they more and more act then like they have no judgment responsibility, which makes paternalism seem more necessary. And it's a spiral downward. You, this vicious cycle you see in paternalistic systems. And it's one of the reasons to not allow paternalism a foot in the door. Yeah, just a, an example of the kind of childishness that you're talking about. I saw a story, I think in the New Republic, about how a few weeks ago in Florida at the CPAC convention, the big kind of annual conservative policy convention. Uh, of course, in Florida, they either the mask mandate had recently been lifted or they didn't have one, I'm not sure which, uh, but this convention's happening in a hotel. I can't remember if it was a Hilton or a Hyatt, but whichever national corporate chain of hotels it was, has a policy that they've adopted for their own reasons of requiring the you know wearing of masks on hotel property well the leaders of the convention had to continuously remind uh their attendees that this was the hospital policy and that remember uh republicans are supposed to believe in private property and so we should respect their wishes well that didn't stop quite a large number of the cpac attendees from booing and uh, failing to comply with the, the hospital policy, I guess on the assumption that, well, this is just, we're being told what to do. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's we're being told by the government or whether we're being told by the hotel company. 
uh, and they don't even make that distinction. And that's even though uh, they themselves are supposedly in favor of respecting and protecting private property rights. So there's an element there of the childishness that you spoke of. I suspect there's also an element of the of political tribalism, uh, of of just uh, you know wanting to hate on your enemy, uh, whether they're the, the big corporations or the big government. They don't distinguish the two. Uh, but it's, I think, the part of the same issue that you were that you were raising. Yes, I think so. And yeah, I think it, it, there is an element of tribalism of just to do the opposite of what you think your enemy tribe is doing, in, or, because it is the opposite. And another thing you brought up about the, I mean, talking specifically about the Texas orders and governor that I think is relevant to what we have talked about, which is that. Um, the, the issue of hospital capacity really wasn't what was driving the lockdowns. It was much more, it's the government's job to manage a pandemic, end the pandemic, decide what people's risks are, what's a legitimate legitimate risk, what isn't, to manage everybody's life, is the, the issue about they're still not testing and they still don't isolate people. If you are really concerned with the spread, and slowing down the spread, not we're, it's our job to end the pandemic, but it's we're slowing down the spread, which will reduce the load on hospitals. You would test and isolate contagious individuals. That's the one job government should be doing. And if you were really concerned with hospital, that's what you would focus on. The more you isolate contagious individuals, the more you slow it down. You don't end it and you're not controlling everything. And that's part of the evidence that it really wasn't what was driving it. It was much more, again, as the Cuomo put it, governor of New York, is we have to save every life, whatever the cost. So I think we should start to wrap up, Ankar, and I'll just remind people who are watching that we're, we're happy to get your questions. Again, if you're in Zoom, hit that Q&A button to open up the Q&A module. We'll look at questions that come in there. Better to put it there than in the chat. Uh, and if you're on, uh, if on, you're on YouTube, we will look at the Super Chat questions that come in. Um, but so Ankar, uh, here we are, we're at least in the United States, maybe we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Some of these state governments are starting to lift the worst of the restrictions. Let's hope it stays that way, uh, that uh, we don't get like the Brazilian variant here. But um, either way, how do you envision the way forward? What is the, what is the lesson that we should walk away from this with, uh, especially for the role of government, especially for uh, proper policy with, with regard to infectious, infectious disease in the future. I've written a kind of white paper about this over the summer of what, as citizens, I think we should be advocating for in a positive uh, direction. That is, what should government do? And I think above all, what the pandemic shows is how much arbitrary power the government has. It's, you can't find anywhere where we've delegated it, the power to lock us down in our homes if uh, a novel coronavirus uh, arises. And you can't find it because we haven't delegated this power, but it's completely unclear in, in a so-called public health emergency, what the government's powers are and aren't. And what it points to is that this has to be codified into law, that what the government's power is in a pandemic, what its role and responsibility is, 
And it is, is essentially to test and to then isolate contagious individuals when you're dealing with an infectious disease at a certain level of severity. And one of the questions on YouTube is like, what's the minimum death rate that's required in order to justify a track, trace, isolate government strategy? And I think that has to be defined into law. There are infectious diseases that do kill people, do result in hospitalizations, uh, the flu being one of these. It, people die from the flu. There's a lot of hospitalizations, but we don't judge it to be severe enough that it warrants the government testing people for the seasonal flu and then isolating them if they don't self-isolate when they carry it. So, but it, this has to be legally specified. The, and the paper deals with various criteria that I think would be relevant to thinking that an infectious disease is severe enough that it warrants government intervention. And then the only kind of intervention it warrants is to test, track, and isolate. Um, but it, that has to be codified into law, and then it has to be codified into law the powers the government doesn't have. In it. And I think it does not have the power to lock down even whole cities, let alone a whole state, because of an infectious disease. It, again, it has, if you're contagious and there's reason, there's evidence to think you are contagious, uh, if you don't isolate, the government can prevent you from going around and infecting other people. That is, in effect, an assault on other people if you're going around infecting them. I mean, and in this pandemic, there's people who've take off, taken off their mask and coughed on other people. And so that's, their, that's the role for government, to stop, prevent that kind of thing. So you have to specify its positive powers, and you have then specify in law the powers it does not have. And part of what's so depressing about this is when you read the CDC guidelines for uh, a flu pandemic, an influenza pandemic, when they're thinking of it, a pandemic as severe as in 1917, they don't think government has the power to engage in lockdowns. And that's right, but the fact that it wasn't codified into law shows that what happens when you have an actual pandemic and there's panic as well on the part of government officials, and there's various reasons I think that there was panic, they will resort to lockdowns and the law has to prevent that from even being an option that's on the table. Yeah, on that last issue, by the way, I should mention there was a very interesting article that recently came out in Quillette uh, and I'm trying to find what the title of that was. It was, well, I've lost it now, but if you look at recent, uh, a recent article in Colette about how lockdown skepticism is not necessarily a fringe movement. The title was something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Basically did a good survey of the consensus view among epidemiologists prior to the pandemic that uh, you know and basically like there was no such thing as a consensus that the way to treat these kinds of things was to lock down everything it was it was more there was a lot more emphasis on on voluntary mitigation but somehow people panicked and a, a new consensus emerged without real data to support it um and so just yeah before we start i see there's a few questions that have come in before we start to look at those i want to mention one last lesson i think is important to walk away from this with which is uh that it's important to distinguish between the political points that you just made on car 
about what the proper role of government is and isn't on the one hand, and what should guide our voluntary behavior on the other. I wrote an article, which I'll give people a link to in a moment, called the, Pro the Pro-Science, Pro-Freedom Alternative to Lockdowns. And one of the things that I stress is you can be a, a, a vociferous critic of lockdowns and still accept and take seriously the fact that this is a very serious disease, that, that the science has been giving us a lot of information that's reliable on how serious it is, and that science is our way out, uh, whether through mitigation uh, techniques like wearing masks, or of course, obviously through the vaccine. And so this political tribalism that we live with now, it makes you choose between the two of them. It makes you uh, assume, well, if I'm anti-lockdowns, I, I also have to be skeptical of the science and skeptical of the idea that there's a real disease here. On the other hand, if I accept the science and I accept that there's a real problem, I must be pro-lockdowns. And the point of the article is you do not have to choose between those two sides. You can be pro-freedom and pro-science. And I think just not nearly enough people have been, and it's a really unfortunate feature of our uh, the discourse in this culture that it's that it's come to that that people can't make that distinction. So let's take a look at a few of the questions that have come in. Um, I see one Ankar that's a kind of uh, practical question. I think that's picking up perhaps on your policy recommendations here. What's the minimum death rate you require in order to justify a track, trace, isolate? government strategy. So not asking about what would justify lockdowns, but what you think is the is the appropriate response. Is there a way to quantify something like that? Yeah, I touched on that in the, the last point that I was making that I think it, it this is the issue is that it legally has to be specified. It's not my kind of personal view about this. It has to be legally specified the criteria by which an infectious disease and it doesn't have to be a novel one it can be something like ebola that it's judged severe enough that if there's reason to think it's present that the government can test and isolate people because uh it, it isolate them if they test positive if there's reason to think they're actual carriers and are infectious and the the criteria has to be specified it will always be, in the end, a judgment call. They'll say, we're, we have a novel coronavirus. We're classifying this as, yeah, this is severe enough. And it, severity will be like, how much immunity is there in the population? How infectious is it? How does it spread? Which is very relevant. Um, that is, is it airborne? Is it through sexual contact? So to thinking that it's, yeah, this is something where government has to intervene. But in the end, it's a decision about a novel virus. But if it's codified into law, that decision can be appealed. And you can, and whether it's cities or states that are suing in effect to saying, no, the wrong decision has been made here. This is more like the seasonal flu and it should not be treated as though um, it's the government has to, to deploy the machinery of testing, isolating and tracking. But when it's not codified into law, the government basically does whatever it wants. And if we're to have a government of laws and not of men, the principles have to be encoded into law, but every law has to be executed and it can be badly executed even if well-written, but you have recourse 
if that happens and you don't if it's not legally specified. Here's a related question that uh, also came from YouTube. Uh, someone asks, can you speak to the sense on one side that the mere existence of someone next to you means immediate death and how we got to that belief and the more general risk rights distinction? I think what the person's asking is something along the lines of what another person's saying on YouTube. Another thing to consider is the death of the onus of proof principle with this pandemic, absent any proof that I have this virus and I am a threat to anyone, I am treated as though I have it. Do you think that's the way that people are actually thinking of this? And if so, uh, what's the alternative? What and and is and and what's what do you think of that view in the first place? Um, well, let me take the first one, and maybe you, you could say something about the second one. This um, the, the the idea that you now are looking everyone as potential carrier, and it means death for me. I think part of what this is the the paternalistic aspect and it's also an aspect of what you brought up about the debate each side reinforces the worst elements in the other side i think because the debate is so bad so the paternalistic aspect of it is is um i'm not really competent to judge to think about risks someone else is doing that in this case it's the government it's a, and the more you're treated and the more you think of yourself as like i can't manage this the more frightening everything seems and then it's you're in a pandemic they say it's really bad and it's the, you're you're ratcheting up the fear factor rather than telling people yeah this is a novel coronavirus a lot of it it's unknown it seems very contagious and there certainly is death from it it's worse than the seasonal flu for various aspects including how contagious, less immunity in the population. So, so you've got to really think about your life and think about like what precautions should you be taking um, and how to manage that. But it's not that it's, oh my God, now it's you might all of a sudden be struck down by lightning every second someone's around you or something. And you saw that, the, I think, irrational mask wearing. There are contexts when it makes sense to wear a mask, but there are contexts like outdoor where you're walking that, and but you saw people doing it, and part of the element is there's a real fear, and I think of what happened. There's a reason for that fear, and then if you think like there's this, it's tribal and politicized, and one side is saying Fauci's an idiot. You might disagree with things Fauci says, but to view him as an idiot, you're just branding yourself as irrational. Like I've heard people say he doesn't know anything about infectious disease. If you pick up a textbook and read one chapter, you'll know more than Fauci about infectious disease. And that's crazy. I mean, it really is crazy. And if they think that there's crazy people all around and they're not so they won't take any precautions, they couldn't care less about this thing. They think the flu is worse than it. So, the more you will look and fear uh, other people. And from the other side, if you treat everyone who objects to lockdowns as like how these are crazy people, they're uninterested in science and so on, then um, people that ratchets up that I'm just surrounded by irrational people. And if that's part of what tribalism does, it's, it's you're giving the other tribe grounds for thinking you're irrational. And they're doing, you're doing the same for them. And it, you, the more you think you're around irrational people who you can't communicate with, the more fear goes up in the whole society. 
it seems like there's a there's a whole article to be written here just on self-fulfilling prophecies and how they are a part <laughs> of tribalism i wanted to say yeah. something about the onus of proof issue so uh, what someone's asking is is so this this the, the idea of the onus of proof is that you've you've the person making the positive claim is the person who's got to show evidence and i completely agree with that uh important logical principle there's a question of how to apply it uh, and there's a question of what counts as positive evidence so here's one example uh say i have a friend who I know very well, and I know uh, what he does on a daily basis, and that he's mostly at home uh, with his kids and doesn't uh, interact much. Uh, he doesn't have any symptoms. He doesn't. I, I don't have reason to think he's been exposed to anybody with uh, with a with the disease. Yeah, I've, I I don't have any evidence to think that he's got the disease, and so I'm not gonna really worry that he might. But that's it's that's a case where you've looked for the evidence that would be relevant and you don't find any. Um, when you're dealing with a bunch of unknown subjects where you don't know where they've been, you don't know what they've done, you don't know what their attitudes are uh, toward the pandemic, and, and especially you're dealing with them in large quantities, like if there's a crowd of people, uh, this is the kind of context where I think statistics has some bearing on uh, on whether there's evidence of a worry here. I mean, if you've got a hundred random people and you don't know anything about them, and uh, you know that there's, you know, let's say 10% of the population infected, I think you have some positive reason in a case like that to think some of those people might be sick. Uh, and now there's a lot of other contextual factors that can affect that if you know something about where this hundred people are coming. But the point is that when you don't know anything about them, yeah, all you have to go on is statistics. And when you're dealing with people as groups, as opposed to as individuals, I mean, that's really what statistics is for. And so I think some of that needs to figure into people's, uh, you know, thinking rationally about who they're going to interact with on what basis and when. And do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I would add another factor that the law thinks about these kinds of things. So that there's an onus of proof, but you also have to think what the standard of proof is. So it has to be fairly high to say you have to isolate. And if you don't, we're going to quarantine you. That doesn't mean that the standard to test people has to be that high. And just think of other areas in the law. You can ask, like, why can the police search my home? They can't prove I'm the murderer or I'm the thief. But yeah, this is part of them acquiring evidence. They need some evidence to give to a judge to say, I'm going to search your home, but it's not the same standard that they have to do to put you in jail for 10 years. They need a lot more evidence and they meet a higher standard. So that there has to be some ev evidence for why the government's operating the way it is, why it's testing these people. And so, yes, there does. But that doesn't mean that they have to know you have the disease before they test you. Otherwise, like, what's the point of testing? So, and this is part of what has to be really thought about in terms of law, just as it's thought about for search warrants and all kinds of things the police do prior to putting somebody in jail. But it's it's the whole apparatus of government functioning by evidence and by laws. And that's what we want here that's not happening. And in the paper, I talked a little bit that some of this is was thought about and implemented in Sweden. And it makes sense, part of the way that they thought about it. And it's, yeah, there has to be evidence, but that's not the same as the government has to somehow miraculously know who's the carrier before they even test. 
and for that sense. they've got to be more like taiwan to yes. adopt a, a, a wide-scale policy of testing um we should start to wrap up uh, i should mention one super chat donation just came in thank you very much for supporting this channel i uh, hope that you can do that again in the future uh, I can share also some resources for people who'd like to learn more about some of the topics and issues we discussed today. Ankar mentioned on a couple of occasions a white paper that he wrote, A Pro-Freedom Approach to Infectious Disease. This is a thorough, in-depth exploration of what the proper role of government in a pandemic should be. Uh, you can find this on our website, download a PDF if you go to bit.ly slash freedom hyphen infectious. There are also a number of articles I've written about pandemic policy. I mentioned that I had written one about why I thought it was a person's moral responsibility selfishly to wear a mask. At the same time, I also wrote an article about what's wrong with mask mandates. And you can find that uh, article, Unjust Mask Mandates Distract from Real Pandemic Priorities, like contact tracing, for instance. If you go to bit.ly slash mask hyphen mandates, uh, I also mentioned an article I wrote about the kind of tribalistic thinking that people have on this issue where they assume they have to pick uh, anti-lockdown and anti-science. So check out my article, A Pro-Freedom Pro-Science Alternative to Lockdowns. That was also a new ideal, and you can find it at bit.ly slash pro-freedom-science. Um, I'll also mention, though, I think I forgot to put the slide up for it, sorry, that we will be having a discussion about some of these issues on Clubhouse uh, this coming Thursday night. That's at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific. Uh, Dr. Greg Salmieri and I will be there at minimum. Maybe maybe Ankar will drop in. Uh, and then I'll also remind you about next week's episode of new ideal live we're going to bring back our new junior fellow mike mazza to have a conversation with ankar about the controversy about cancel culture that'll be the episode will be called challenging cancel culture if you liked watching this episode today especially if you're on youtube i'd encourage you to subscribe to our youtube channel and hit that bell to get notifications when we post new material or go live in the future also please like this episode or comment on this episode that helps to optimize the algorithm so that more people will get notification will be able to uh, follow us in the future same story on facebook if you're watching there please like this episode please share this episode that will uh, raise the profile of the facebook page as well finally if you have questions about issues that we talked about today please consider sending us an email uh, we read all the emails that come in we answer many of them and sometimes we even do episodes on topics that viewers suggest so thanks again for joining us uh thanks Ankar. this was i think a, a good discussion to have to update our audience about the latest developments in the pandemic um, i'm personally hoping that we don't have to have too many more of these episodes all right uh, thanks ankar and thanks everyone we will yeah, see you all next week you've been listening to new ideal a podcast from the ayn rand institute if you like what you hear leave us a review share with a friend and subscribe to our other podcasts this podcast was made possible by donors to the ayn rand institute Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.